got a Bible or a smartphone, some device will be looking at the Scripture with us this morning. We'll be in Luke chapter 13. We've been working our way uh, through Luke for the last several months, just kind of chapter by chapter, and just a brief bit of um, recap. The last couple weeks, um, in these chapters 11 and 12 especially, there's been a lot of, of harsh kind of judgment talk. Um, inter- there's been hope interspersed as well, right, but the tone has been, it's been heavy. It's been on a reminder of the need to repent, right? Um, otherwise that we perish, with perish being the opposite of salvation, right? Um, and, and then last week, the reminder to the nation as Jesus says, listen, um, bear fruit. Like, bear fruit right now, you're a barren fig tree. And there's a short time, there's hope, there's mercy available, but bear fruit. And so the question being, right, are we going to repent? Are we going to bear fruit? Um, he's, he's reminded them to, listen, you know how to interpret the weather, but you've, you've been unable thus far to interpret what God is doing in my life and ministry thus far. And so we're going to pick up in verse 10 in Luke 13. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. And the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who Satan bound for eighteen years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all of his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. And he said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? Like a grain of mustard sowed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree. And the birds of the air may nest in its branches. And again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leaven. So we have this scene, right, where, where Jesus has been teaching um, the crowds, mostly out um, in, in, in the public, and now here he is on the Sabbath in a synagogue, right? He's teaching, so it's a more formal setting. Um, remember, in, in this society, right, women would not have been in, in the primary teaching time, right? They're, they're, they tend to be a little more invisible around this um, time of worship. And then you have this woman who has been sick for 18 years, right? Like hunched over. And imagining for 18 years, right, that you're, you're looking at people's shoes more than their faces, right? In, in a society where the expectation is, is what did she do, right? Like what sin of hers led to that? Like that, that's the question. And you know, hearing children's snicker and laughter, right? Hearing sighs and going, like just the pity for 18 years, right? You can imagine the, the weight and the shame and, and 
to some degrees the desire to be invisible and yet also feeling invisible that this woman would have had. Um, even today, um, in Yemen and places in the Middle East, um, if, if you have a severe like, like visual disability, something that is seen, um, you're often hidden away. Um, you just aren't seen because it, brings, it can bring shame on your family, right? Because they're asking, was it your sin or was it their sin? Um, it, it, right? There's these things that are just a stigma. It's uncomfortable. And yet here she is, around worship, around the synagogue, and Jesus sees her. And I love, right, that, that it just says, look at verse 12. When Jesus saw her, he called her over. Right? She's not right, trying to get his attention. She's not trying to draw focus. She's present. She's hearing him teach. She's probably heard rumor of this one. And here he is, and he sees her. And he calls her over. And I love the gentle, the tenderness of Jesus here. And he speaks, and he touches her, and he says, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid hands on her, right? And she knew as his hands touched, right? Like this is God doing it. And so she immediately glorifies God. Ultimately, like what Luke is probably showing us here is that this wasn't a demon possession. It was more a reminder that there is open conflict between, right, the world and the devil and God, right? That there are impacts and effects and that those happen spiritually and those happen physically. And, and passages like this are not going to answer all of our curious questions of exactly how did it happen and why did it happen and what, what type of spirit was and what right, the focus in this one actually isn't even going to be on the healing as much as the response. And yet it's important for us to just to see the character of Jesus here, that he sees someone in distress who has physically right, been tormented for 18 years and he ministers. And he brings compassion and healing and grace to her, and she responds with rejoicing and glorifying God. Right? And so imagine the scene, right? You're, you, you're, you've been at the worship that morning. This occurs. This woman stands up and she starts praising God. And like people are going, hey, we've heard about this guy. He's just taught. Now look what he's done. And you can imagine the, the murmuring and the exuberance in the room as this is happening. And the synagogue leader, right? Look at verse 14. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because of Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, right? Like this is meant to strike um, a contrast here that this glorious, miraculous thing has happened, and here he is in charge, and he is angry. He's indignant. But you'll notice he doesn't actually speak to Jesus. Right? He speaks to the crowd. Like he can see the crowd turning, so he turns. He's like, I don't know that I want to go there. I've heard what he's done to the Pharisees. Right? So let me, let me speak to y'all. What Jesus is doing in this moment is he's giving them an opportunity to read the weather. Remember earlier in chapter 12 where he's like, you can see the clouds and you know a storm, right, that rain is coming. You can feel the wind and know that heat is coming. You can interpret the weather. But can you interpret what God is doing? And now, not only have I been doing this, I've told you that's what I'm doing, and I'm going to do it again to once again give you opportunity to respond and to repent, to see that God is at work. Can you read the signs? Can you read the times? And this, Sabbath, this synagogue leader 
is indignant. He goes, there are six days on which the work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed. Which you'll notice, she didn't come to be healed. She wasn't drawing attention. And yet he's already trying to put shame on her, saying, you've interrupted worship by needing to be healed. Like This is like, cringe, like cringeworthy, right? Hearing him speak. Come on those days and be healed, not on the Sabbath. And so really what he's doing here is he's referring back to the Ten Commandments. Right? The idea that we would honor the Sabbath. Let me read this to you again. This is Exodus 20, verse 8. Just remind you of what the law said. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. And on it you shall not do any work, you or your servant, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And so what the the synagogue leader here is doing is he is holding to the rule of the law rather than the rather than the intent of the law. Right? That he's going, hey, this is the rule. There's six days to work. And yet, because there was questions and, and confusion on what this should look like, um, the rabbis have made laundry lists of rules to clarify what you could or you could not do. Right? So one of the things was, um, you could take your oxen or your donkeys to get water. Right? That's an act of mercy, of compassion upon them. But if you're doing that, you can't have a load on them because a load would mean work. And the animal needs the day off. And so you can do acts of compassion for the animal, but don't make the animal work. And if you're going to take them to the watering hole, you can do that, but you can only go up to 3,000 feet. Right? So there were these rules to kind of clarify this is work adjacent. Right? Like we're doing some things, but it's, it's good and it's not work. And so all of these rules existed and were a part of the society. And so Jesus responds and says, you hypocrites. You'll notice it go, he doesn't say, you hypocrites. He knows there are those in the room who agree with the synagogue leader. And so he says, anyone who's, who's thinking, yeah, 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 he's right. That was a mic drop moment for the synagogue leader. He's like, you hypocrites. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? Right? He's saying, you, you already do things like this. How much more should a woman, a daughter of Abraham, be loose, be freed? Who Satan is bound for 18 years, right? The synagogue leader ultimately, here's what he's saying is, hey, it's been 18 years. What's one more day? That's easy to say when you're not the one that's been hunched over for 18 years. Jesus, you should, you should have done it tomorrow, not today. And Jesus is reminding them and us here of the intent of the law. Right? What a better day to have someone healed than to be reminded that God is the one who has done this. That He's the one who has put into the created order. Right? He's, and He's like, y'all are caring more about animals than you are about people. You're showing acts of mercy and compassion to them and not to this woman, and you would be upset that this has even occurred. This is the heart of God, is to bring compassion 
and mercy. And what they're arguing for is tradition. It's tradition over compassion. And listen, we could stop the sermon there and just move into that. Because the question I want us to ask, and we're not going to linger here, but something that we can even just um, talk about in gospel community and to consider is, what traditions does the church have today that might pit people against God? Right? That we would hold on to apart from showing compassion and mercy and seeing people. That we would say, you've broken the tradition, and now we're going to try to push you further away from God. Like, what is it? Right? They're saying, God, you, they're saying to Jesus, you haven't done what we expect. You haven't met our tradition, and that's more important than this woman being healed from knowing you. What are our traditions that might get in the way of people knowing God? Because what has happened in this moment is, is this woman's exodus. It's her day of deliverance. Where she has met God and been removed from bondage and fear and has found salvation. Often Luke doesn't show us what the, a person's response is when they're freed from a demon or healed. It's kind of left open-ended. Here we see that she glorifies God, that she immediately gives God the credit for it. Remember, Luke is being written to Theophilus, right? This Gentile believer who's, who's concerned with why is there so much conflict? Like, hey, was this the plan of God? Like, why are Jews and Christians here competing and, and fighting? It seems like, why is there so much difficulty? And so Luke here is showing us, hey, Theophilus, I'm helping you understand that the reason there's so much conflict is because the traditions are not being met. Because new wine has come and new wineskins. And there's conflict over it. There's power um, over it of those who are losing power and seeing the church begin to move forward. But there's also conflict here, Theophilus, in creation. Right? On the spiritual realm between God and Satan. Right, that Satan has influenced and impacted and disabled this woman. There's a song we sang last week called This is War. Right, I believe we're going to sing it after the sermon as well. That this, like, There is a war going on. That God has come in to open conflict, to rescue His people who are behind the enemy lines, and to bring them back to the Father where, they, where we belong. And in this scene, right, we see an exodus where, where the nation is rescued out from a superpower in the world to be taken to know God and to walk with God, right? This woman who has been in bondage to Satan and to disability and to sin for all of her life has now been freed in this moment, has been delivered from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. This is war. And there are casualties. It costs Jesus His life for us to be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And so Luke is highlighting and showing us this one beautiful moment where it happened. But church, we live in a world like last week where we saw where the Tower of Siloam fell and those who were on their way to make sacrifices were slaughtered by Rome. We live in that world that is broken, that is painful, that is difficult, where there are sudden tragedies, where there is demonic attack, where there is death and disease, where there are tears and loneliness and separation. Right? Like that's the world we live in. And Jesus has stepped in to say, it's not the world you're intended for. 
And so it's war. And he is going to war against Satan here. And the beautiful aspect of this passage is we see Satan's grip being loosened. Right? He wasn't able to hold this woman. When Jesus touches, when Jesus speaks, she stands up straight and she's loose and bondage is over. Right? Like Satan's grip is being loosened. And so he's telling the disciples, he's revealing to them, this is happening. This is what is occurring here. Right? Let's be reminded um, from earlier in Luke, the hope that we have. This is Luke chapter 1, verses 77. Right? Uh, let me start in verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you'll go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. That is this world. We're in darkness and in the shadow of death. But to guide our feet into the way of peace. And in chapter 4, verse 18, Jesus speaking again in the synagogue, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Right? This wasn't just um, kind of an expedition to see what's going on. He was coming to set things right, to restore, to bring us back, right? to open our eyes, to stir our affection, to say, this isn't our home, it's with God. And you're, you need rescue. You need a path back. And I've come to do that. And there are those who would say, we're good. We're good. We like our system. We like our way. We're okay. And they want to stay rebels towards God. Church, this morning, would we ask the question, like, what's between you and the Lord this morning? Like, what's, what's keeping you from seeing Him as Redeemer and Rescuer, Savior? Right? Obviously, it's our sin, right? But, but for some of us, there's, in addition to that, it could be circumstances, it could be our own health, it could be relationships, it could be something we feel like is owed to us that we lack. It could be that we feel like we don't, sit, we don't fit church culture, right? It could be that the traditions have been used against us. And what this passage is revealing to us is this, that Jesus sees you. He saw this woman hunched over, scorned, forgotten, mocked, humiliated for 18 years. He saw her and he met her need, physical and spiritual. Jesus sees you this morning. He knows your fears. He knows your doubts. He knows your anxieties. He knows the things that you feel like keep you from Him. And even your attempts to make things right, to look a little better so that you can show up and maybe God will like you. Right? That's not how it works. He sees you as you are this morning. And He cares for you. And He's calling you and He's saying, come, be a part. Belong. Find your exodus, your deliverance, your day of rescue. And you don't have to be in bondage to, to, to people's opinions or approval. You don't have to be in bondage to your sin or to the, the, the one who is ruling this world temporarily. You can be mine, son and daughter of the King, belonging at the table, seen and known and welcomed. 
come and sit and feast and eat. I have done the work. You can partake. And it reminds us that any time is appropriate. Jesus breaks tradition to rescue her in this moment. There's not a, there's not a better time than now. Any time is appropriate. But even in this, when uh, society would not have approved, Jesus is rescuing. He sees us. And He meets us. Listen, Romans 8, 18 says this, and I want you to think of this woman being rescued by Jesus here, if this is not what she would say. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Right in that moment, you notice she doesn't say, Jesus, thank you for straightening my back. I have some questions. Why 18 years? Right? Like why, like she, she just, her back is straightened, she is seen by the Lord, and what does she do? She glorifies God. Right? The, the, the weight of glory that was falling upon her and that which she was only getting a taste of, there's more to come. She's like, that's enough. And she's glorifying God. She doesn't get all of her questions answered. She just knows that she has met God and He is sufficient for her. And so in this scene, you've got the, the synagogue leader who says, hey, Jesus shouldn't have done this. And you have Jesus saying, hey, you hypocrites. Do you notice there's no room for neutrality? In this moment, you are either siding with those who are rejoicing and worshiping and celebrating the character and the goodness and the healing power of God, or you are a whiner and a complainer and a rebel saying, I should have done it different. And it feels like it should be evident which side we want to be on. Right? It's meant to look absurd. So that when we hold on to our sin that we would be reminded of the absurdity of that as well. When we say, no, 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 I need this more than Jesus. Then it would appear to us in this manner of the absurdity of it, but when we're holding on to our tradition, our sin, our rebellion, our thing, it feels like it's the biggest thing in the world and that we look wise, not foolish. This morning, would the Spirit of God be gracious enough to show you what it is you're holding on to and the foolishness of it? With the absurdity that you can see this passage, you would see your own idols and sin. The final thing then, look at verse 18. So after this, right? he's, he's, he's healed, he's done this, his adversaries in verse 17 are put to shame, people are rejoicing at the glorious things that were done, and then he, he adds to it. And he said, therefore... What is the kingdom of God like? And he's right. this is what you would expect to start the passage, right? Hey, what's the kingdom of God like? Let's answer that question. And then he, he does this. But instead, he does all of this. He heals, and then he says, let me tell you what the kingdom of God is like. Now remember, he is training and preparing and teaching the disciples that the kingdom of God is coming, but it's not coming in the way you expect. I'm not going to be a conquering king in a military might sort of, what, sort of way. There's not going to be this spectacular... Just, I'm going to speak and everyone's going to fall over dead. That's not what I'm doing. It's going to look different than that. And we're headed to the cross, and I'm, I'm, I'm headed to Jerusalem with resolve, right, is what he is telling them. And he's already healed people before. But in this now, he's healing and he's adding and helping them understand why. And so he says, what's the kingdom of God like? What, to, what should we compare it to? And he goes, 
it's like a grain of mustard that a man took, planted, it grew, and it became a tree, and the birds of the air may nest in its branches. Right? A mustard seed. Tiny. So small. Insignificant. And it's planted, and it's forgotten about, and eventually it grows into a tree, and the birds land. Right? He's showing, like, hey, it's something small that grows into something large. It's something that starts and is forgotten and seems insignificant and not something to worry about. Right? And then it becomes something that is seen and known. It is a gradual process of growth that goes from insignificant to significant. And he continues, and he gives another analogy, another comparison here. And he says, what else is the kingdom of God like? And he goes, it's like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour. Three measures of flour is like 50, 60 pounds of flour, enough to feed you know, 150 people. It's a significant amount of flour. And she drops some leaven in it. And you forget about it, right? It's, it's all but forgotten and invisible, and it seems insignificant, and the amount shouldn't permeate the whole, and yet it does. It changes the whole composition and what's going to happen to the flower. What is he teaching the disciples? What is he teaching us here? He's saying the kingdom of God is not an institution. It's not a, a military might that's going to come and take over. It is a people. It's a people. And their presence will seem insignificant often. And yet it's permeating. And it's working. And it's doing something. And it can even be forgotten, right? And in the, in the culture, and the military might of the world right now would be looking and go, ah, he's, he's, he's just out there talking. And yet all of, their, all of them are gone. And the church has remained. And the church continues to move throughout the world and continues to permeate and to grow continues to, to take this message that the kingdom of God is here. Consider this. How did Jesus arrive on the scene as we celebrate Advent? Humble. Humble. Right? Not at home. In a manger. In rags. Right? Like he, he, he did not come in a glorious, mighty way. He came in humility. What about the cross? He's going to go into Jerusalem and be crucified when He could call down angels. He could just do what He wants. And He goes to the cross and it looks like a loss. And yet He is actually putting to open shame the kingdom of darkness in that because it's actually victory. And the kingdom of God starts in these seemingly insignificant, minuscule ways. And He's like, it's going to do something. He's teaching the disciples, it's not going to look like you think. And you're going you're gonna to doubt it, but I'm telling you, trust God's plan. Trust His plan. Because when He does come back, when He does split the sky, it will be spectacular. It will be in power and might. It will be impressive. Are we trusting His plan? Listen, if we were to look at this passage, we would expect God to say, the kingdom of God is like a cedar tree. Big and powerful. Not a, right, not a mustard seed. He's saying it's not going to be what you anticipate. It's not going to be what you expect. It's going to be surprising. I want to read a couple quick Old Testament passages too. The first, this is from Psalm 104. I'm going to read verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O my Lord, my God, You are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. So it's a psalm praising God. Let's go over to verse 10. You make valleys gush forth in the va- springs gush forth in the valley. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. 
the wild donkeys quench their thirst, and beside them the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. I want you to keep that imagery. From your lofty abode you water the mountains, and the earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. So right, we have this imagery of the birds just sitting and singing and enjoying the shade and the shelter of the trees because God is caring for, seeing, and providing for them. And if we go to Ezekiel 17, beginning in verse 22, Thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and set it out. I'll break off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one, and I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. And on the mountain height of Israel will I plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird. In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. And all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I will bring low the high tree and make high the low tree, dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord. I have spoken. And I will do it. What he's telling us is the kingdom of God will be something that seems small and insignificant and it will grow into a tree and the birds will find rest and shelter there. And it will be birds of all kinds because it's a reminder that it's for all peoples and all nations. We are a recipient of that promise in Ezekiel. We right, are not... Um, Middle Eastern Jews. We're not, but the gospel has found us. It has permeated the flower, and the tree has grown up, and we now have the ability to flap our wings and to land in the branches of the kingdom of God where we find belonging and shelter and provision and protection because the kingdom of God has done what Jesus said it would do. And it is continuing to do it, and we are in a season of hope and of mercy before Jesus returns where others can find that same belonging in the kingdom of God. Despite opposition here from the synagogue leader, despite opposition from both Jewish religious leaders and Rome and Jerusalem, despite opposition from Satan, all of their grips are being loosened. And the kingdom will come to reality. Right, And the, the battle and the conflict that we are seeing in the world with tears and fear and death and separation and all of those things that Jesus is showing us that He has the authority to reverse and to restore and to be made right. The kingdom that we belong to is this kingdom. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and He will dwell with them and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Pain shall be no more. Nor mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. We get to see a glimpse of it in a woman standing up straight after 18 years. We get a glimpse of it as we land on the branches because salvation has found us in Jesus. And we get to know that that's coming right when Jesus splits the sky and all will see and every knee will bow. Those who will realize they doubted the kingdom and those who will say, no, no, that's my king. I belong to him. Right? We are seeing this, and Jesus is helping the disciples understand this. He's helping us understand this. One last thought. Making bread would have been extraordinarily mundane and ordinary. Like a daily occurrence. Just a thing that you do to live. And he's saying, but as, as the leaven gets in there, and it permeates and it changes it, 
over the long haul. Church, would we be reminded that as we are around the church, as we spend time in the Word, as we spend time in prayer, as we engage in obedience to Jesus, day in and day out, it's not spectacular, ordinary, it's mundane, and yet it has drastic, transformational effect on us. That we are not the same. Would you not grow weary of doing good? Would you trust the plan of God for the church and also for your own spiritual development? That He sees you, He cares for you, and it's doing something. Let's pray. Jesus, we say thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you that you are working even in these moments. Lord, for some that you would be lifting their chins to, to see that they are seen by you, that they belong to you. God, if someone feels forgotten or missed this morning, would your character and compassion overwhelm them? And it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. God, for those of us who have something we're holding on to, would you show us the absurdity of it? God, for those of us who might be growing weary or bored with the things of you, would you remind us that it is transforming and changing us day in and day out, moment in and moment out, for our good and for your glory? God, would we trust your plan of what you're doing? But we need you and we ask you to speak. In Jesus' name, amen.